What's up, QAA listeners? The fun games have begun. I found a way to connect to the internet. I'm sorry, boy. Welcome, listener, to chapter 243 of the QAnon Anonymous podcast, the Jewish Space Lasers episode. As always, we are your hosts, Jake Rakotansky, Julian Fields, and Travis View. One thing that fascinates me about modern conspiracism is how little of it is original. It typically involves taking storylines and tropes that are hundreds of years old and then remixing them for new audiences, technology, and media. Like Adrenochrome and Pizzagate are just remixed blood libel. The Seth Rich conspiracy theory followed many of the same beats as 19th century conspiracy theories uh, about the anti-Mason William Morgan. You know, conspiracy theories usually just use the same handful of stories that are retold over and over again like folktales. A core reoccurring theme in conspiracist narratives is that the puppet masters of world history are the Jews generally and the Rothschild banking family specifically. Now, the true story of the Rothschilds is about the birth of modern international banking, war profiteering, the financialization of the economy, and all the consequences of those developments. Now, there's plenty of substance to critique there, but even after the Rothschilds became one of a handful of players in the great global game of finance, conspiracy theories about the Rothschilds became a way to publish anti-Semitic attacks and disguise them as critiques of wealth and power. Now, these tales have continued into the 21st century. Uh, In QAnon lore, the Rothschilds are one of three entities who truly run the world, along with the Saudi royal family and George Soros. To help us separate fact from myth when it comes to the Rothschild, we are joined by Mike Rothschild. And as he's had to point out many times, despite his name, he's not getting that sweet Rothschild cash. He is uh, unrelated. You may know him as the author of the essential book on QAnon titled The Storm is Upon Us. His most recent book, coming out in September, is titled Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. Mike, thanks again for joining us. I am always happy to be here, guys. Well, I mean... (laughs) It's fun for all, you know, the four of us to, you know, get together and talk. But let's be real. None of us are really happy. No. Uh, oh, no. To be no. Here. I mean, the fact that we have to do this uh, is, is appalling. Uh, but if we do have to do it, you know, might as well do it with you guys. Your family has fallen from high that, that you would go from an international power broker to someone who has to write books about space lasers that don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> to somebody who willingly appears on podcasts. <laughs> yeah, it's um, especially interesting because the the title of your book, what it references, has sort of became uh, become relevant in the conspiracist world again. So uh, the, now the title of your book comes from a Facebook post made by Marjorie Taylor Greene. This, this was posted all the way back in 2018, about two years before she was elected to Congress. And the post was made in response to the deadly wildfire in California that year. And the the post said that the fires were the result of a conspiracy between the energy company PG&E, Governor Jerry Brown, the solar energy company Solarin, and Rothschild Inc. And further, these fires were actually sparked by satellites that focused the sun's energy, which were shot down to Earth. And so the, the summary of this conspiracy theory is that the fires were caused by Jewish space lasers. 
So it's um, interesting because, you know, recently we've been following the horrifying news coming out of Hawaii in which um, you know, thousands of acres are burning and uh, it's really devastating. Lots of homes, uh, you know, lives upturned. And uh, as of this recording, the death toll is 96, making it the deadliest U.S. wildfire in more than a century. And I certainly hope, uh, you know, as, uh, as we, that gets under control, we get more information about what exactly went wrong there. Now, the, the precise spark of the fire isn't known. Known, but uh, the National Weather Service said that a mix of dry vegetation, strong winds, and low humidity fueled the fast-moving flames. Of course, the effects of climate change have helped create the conditions for wildfires that are this hard to control. But conspiracists online appeared with basically the same theory that Marjorie Taylor Greene promoted years ago. So here's one popular post uh, from TikTok. This was a direct energy weapon assault on the people. And I say that because my friend in Hawaii, which I'm going to show this picture here, showed a laser beam coming out of the sky directly targeting the city. This is really important to be aware of because when we look back at Paradise Valley, when they had their fire, we see a lot of similarities such as the trees still standing, which is very interesting for a fire. Now, with this whole entire thing, the mainstream media is going to say that this is climate change and that we need to do better. But what's not going to be talked about is the weather modification projects which take place in the United States every single day, spraying aluminum and barium and strontium up into the sky, which if you think about it, aluminum is a very flammable material, which could result in something like this. Aluminum is flammable. I mean, there's a lot a lot here. Yeah. Also, the, the guy misspelled barium in his TikTok video. So, you know, maybe not dealing with um, top-level geniuses here, maybe mid-level geniuses. Yeah, trees famously do not contain moisture. Why would they not burn down? (laughs) In an alternate universe somewhere, an alternate timeline parallel to this one, somebody from far away took a picture of the fires and they went, wow, look at that. The refraction of the light in the camera makes it look like there's like a beam coming down. That's crazy. Isn't it crazy how light can distort photographs and stuff wild i hope everybody's okay and then that's the that's the end of it but in this reality it's no it actually is a laser beam coming from the heavens a la some (laughs) roland emmerich flick yeah it doesn't really make sense to me because like if if i was a member of the cabal that uh, secretly ruled the world and i wanted to start some fires because this would help my agenda towards a one world government I would just send in the minion with a bottle of kerosene and a big lighter. That yep. seems like it would be like a sneakier plan than uh, a light coming from the heavens. That's a little bit sh- little <laughs> showier and like you know ostentatious. I feel like people would notice that more than the kerosene bottle guy. Some of the young Rothschilds like to take the um, space laser satellites for joyrides, mm-hmm, and sure. you know they've been warned like, please do not use the laser. We only use that for massive wars where it can be easily covered up. You can't just do it random on Hawaii and of course youth you know the folly of youth they they don't listen you know I also hate this because like when they finally do like master this like the space laser technology no one's gonna believe them no one's gonna believe them when like you know we got a real boy who cried wolf situation here I don't know I'll still believe it (laughs) I miss the days when conspiracy theorists were like crusty old guys in a camper you know out in the middle of nowhere on a you know ham radio broadcast but we've got this like young good looking guy you know nice nice haircut, like clean white tea, you know, on TikTok now sort of doing the same thing. It's uh, the kid, the kids, they're not all right. No, they're not.
Now, there was another viral tweet. This one came from a woman who claimed that she personally witnessed the attacks, and she doesn't offer a lot of details or evidence, Mm. but she does have a very emotional delivery, which probably helped her popularity. I have been trapped in Lahaina for the last four days, and I experienced firsthand what was going on there. What I went through is not important. I need to get this message out. This was not a natural disaster. This was a direct energy attack on the people and the place of Maui. If you know what lives there, what descendants live there, you know why. And you know why it happened on 8-8. And if this is not something that you believe, it's time to stop being a sheep. Unsurprisingly, you don't see a lot of native Hawaiians uh, involved mm. here. It's just like yeah. a bunch of like random uh, I know this this young woman is wearing a, a sweatshirt that has the font is kind of like um uh, live laugh love sort of <laughs> <laughs> sort of font, but the text is let's grow, girl. Yeah, let's grow. I mean, this whole situation sucks because it does feel like we're debating what caused the fire as the flames consume us. I feel like that's really going to be the history of the future of humanity. Um, <laughs> it also sucks because it feels it feels like everyone everyone kind of like is really debating over the degree of telology involved in the fires. Like a lot of people might say that, you know, what happened was is that because of, you know, decades of geoengineering, we've been speaking spewing a lot of extra carbon into the atmosphere, which is causing the climate to change in ways that are very unpredictable and hard to control. And that was done deliberately by people who knew what they are doing. And maybe they didn't know this exact fire would happen, but they were negligent or indifferent. And so that is the human intervention in these kinds of fires. But they take it a little bit more direct approach. It's like, no, no, someone pressed the big red button that said fire laser. And that's why, you know... uh, uh, all this devastation happened in Hawaii. Well, sure. It's it's anything to not talk about the real conspiracy, which is the oil companies and the mining companies and the manufacturing companies. It's a cooler conspiracy with lasers and fire and secret evacuations and Oprah's burning down the forest so she can gobble up more land. And it's a conspiracy to explain a conspiracy that just lets most people off the hook for turning away from what's really been happening to the climate. Yeah, not to mention, you know, I mean, if we're talking about Hawaii, of course, course, we got to bring up the military bases and the fact that the American military is the single largest contributor to carbon emissions in the world. Mm. So it's fun to look at uh, the Rothschild family and the Jewish space lasers instead of, you know, like you mentioned, the actual structures that are suicidally uh, pushing humanity to the brink. I think there's a feeling of helplessness, you know, when your average environment comes up against these, you know, massive corporations or, you know, these industrial entities. And it's almost like they want to feel even more helpless. And so, you know, when you when you place the blame on a giant super weapon that is uh, floating above uh, the atmosphere that is controlled by the government or, you know, the secret cabal of elites, there's even less that you can do about that, you know? Yeah, and that's what's really sad, I think, about essentially starting to become a literalist about the metaphors you could use to talk about the people who have power, who don't care about us, who are basically 
preparing for global warming, but they're preparing by making sure that they are going to be safe and that other people will be the, you know, the front lines of like the devastation. It's like if you wanted to make a metaphor, it's like, yeah, they don't care about us. Like they are sacrificing us, essentially. And then it's like, well, what if the metaphor was real and we had giant space lasers? And then it's like, well, fuck, how are we going to organize against any of this shit if this is where we're at? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's much less attractive if the solution is getting more involved in your local politics or your, you know, or activism regarding the environment or, you know, speaking out against these these large entities. That that requires work, that requires a refocus, that requires um, pulling your community together. Whereas if the enemy is this unseen, unstoppable sort of global force, you can't do anything. You can, you can make a lot of videos and you can be very upset and you can convey, you, you know, this, this desperate sense of helplessness, but there's really nothing to do there, which I think to some people in a, in a way is a more attractive explanation because yeah. they get to be mad, but they don't have to change, you know, they don't have to change their focus or reevaluate their politics or reevaluate their beliefs on climate change for example. Yeah, it's like, well, you know, it's Chevronstein. Oh, it's uh, the Shellberg uh, Corporation. Hey, the Shellbergs are beautiful people, and I do not hear any kind of slander against the them. The Shellbergs are great people. They're great people. They've got a great logo. A big shell. A big shell. Very expensive gas in Los Angeles. Uh, but a great logo. Good people. Great family. Mm. Yeah, have you ever met the uh the uh, uh, the <laughs> God damn it. Shmuel Shmuel Saudi Arabia. Have you ever met <laughs> <laughs> Well, there was some cheating at Mahjong last time, so things are a little delicate right now, uh-huh. but uh I'm sure we'll we'll fix it all. I mean, this isn't anything new. It's like even nope. if you look back to, you know, uh, like the whole bl- blaming Jewish people and uh you know, blood libel and, you know, keeping them outside of the city walls. It's like, well, it's it can't be the king. It can't be the king who said up a hierarchy of of oppression that kind of rains down on the rest of us. It's got to be these these weird new guys in town. They they look different. They sound different. They sing a lot. They sing a lot. They sing before they drink the wine. They sing before (laughs) they eat the bread. There's something going on here. Uh, Mike, before we start talking about the content of your new book, I got to ask what inspired you to write about Rothschild's conspiracy theories as a man named Rothschild who isn't related to the financial dynasty? <laughs> um, masochism, apparently. Okay. No, um, okay. You know, growing up, nobody thought that we were rich. You know, I lived in a you know the north suburbs of Chicago. We all had the same sort of housing design. Like nobody ever thought that. And then when I started getting into conspiracy theories, I'd you know I'd start writing about this stuff, and I would hear, oh, a Rothschild writing about conspiracies. And it never really occurred to me to maybe you know use like a pen name mm-hmm. or something because people are going to figure it out anyway, and then it looks like you're hiding something. But with the idea of really specifically writing about the Rothschilds, you know, the Rothschilds come up a lot in QAnon. And what I really wanted to learn was why do we keep talking about them? What is what is the truth with these people? What is what is fiction? What is the reality? And I what I really wanted to know at the beginning was what do what do they think about it? And of course, that was the first big roadblock I hit was they don't talk about any of this stuff. They don't they don't mention these things. They don't give a lot of interviews. Period. And when they do, it's usually related to finance or art or 
um, banking or things like that. And, you know, these aren't things that usually come up. So what I wanted to do was take this bigger view of why do we keep talking about this family? What did this family actually accomplish versus what do conspiracy theorists think they accomplished? Where is the line between the truth and the myth? And why does this stuff keep getting recycled? And once you start going down that road, there's so much material there. There's so many references to them. They're interweaved throughout history in a way that is very interesting without all of the conspiracy theories. And then the conspiracy theories themselves are a fascinating picture of sort of worldwide paranoia of the last two centuries. Mm. As you point out in the book, you really can't uh, understand Rothschild conspiracy theories without first understanding sort of uh, stereotypes about Jews being good with money or greedy. And uh, you talk about how these stereotypes stem from the fact that Jews did make up the majority of the money lending business in Europe. But this happened due to a a combination of Jewish cultural values and the fact that they were shut out of Christian society. So how did that develop? Yeah, the the early sort of union between Judaism and finance really happened out of necessity. A lot of Christian communities uh, believed in the canon law prohibitions on lending money at interest. But at the same time, these big communities, and especially their royals, needed a lot of money. They needed money to build these churches. They needed money to build fortresses. They needed money to equip armies. So when you need money, but you can only get it from a certain group of people, that group of people tends to take on an outsized amount of power and an outsized amount of myth. So Jews were able to lend their own communities money. They were able to borrow from other wealthy Jewish families. A lot of them got into things like dealing in coins and metals. There was a lot of money changing going on. You know, all of these different Holy Roman Empire states all had different currencies. So somebody needed to swap out this duchy's currency for that duchy's currency, and then it'll take a little bit off the top as well. You know, that's just how you make money. That's just business. So the Jewish communities had this sort of two-faced reputation as the people we go to when we need money, but we also resent them because they have the money to lend us. And it, it very quickly stops making a lot of sense. And you have these prohibitions against usury, which is, of course, lending money at what's deemed outrageous interest rates. But then at the same time, a lot of Christians started to get into banking and finance, and they were allowed to lend money at interest. So that line between interest and usury was always moving around to the detriment of Jews, but it really was Jewish communities being shut out of other professions, and the one place that they were allowed to go was finance. Yeah, it's funny that the Knights Templar never brought up because they were allowed to kind of cross the uh, borders of Christendom and they did set up the first banking networks, you know, but they just get they get left out, man. They get no credit. Yeah. The patriarch of the Rothschild banking family is Mayor Amschel Rothschild. Now, he is someone who is genuinely, profoundly influential in the history of banking and business. So how did he get into the finance game? Sure. So Mayer and his descendants lived in the Frankfurt Jewish ghetto, literally called the Judengasse, the, the Jews' lane. It was a ghetto. It was essentially a very small, tightly packed, walled city. There were about 3,000 people living in it. And this became a center of commerce and finance in the free city of Frankfurt. 
which was one of the major parts of the Holy Roman Empire. So Mayer's family had started off as sort of small-time financiers. They sold coins. They sold textiles. Mayer's father, Amschel, had come up a little bit in business. And then Mayer went off to rabbinical school, but his parents both died. So he had to move back. And at a very young age, he essentially became the patriarch of the family. And he got into dealing coins, medals, making small loans, and he would become the court Jew for the crown prince of Hesse. So this was the son of the leader of the Holy Roman Empire state of Hesse Kessel. And as such, he began to get access to more money. He began to make bigger loans. He began to expand his trade outside of Frankfurt. He got to travel a lot, and he started to slowly accumulate a small but growing financial empire. And he then brought his sons into it. He had five sons and five daughters. His oldest son, Amschel, uh, essentially worked hand in hand with him in Frankfurt. And they were in a position when the Holy Roman Empire went to war in the Napoleonic War started, Mayer and his sons were in a position to essentially take care of this gigantic amount of money that the leader of the state of Hesse had. And of course, one of the ways that the uh, elector of Hesse had compiled all this money was through the selling of mercenaries, and in particular to England. The Hessians who fought in the American Revolution, one of the grievances specifically listed in the Declaration of Independence were mercenaries sold by the elector of Hesse, and the court Jew to the elector of Hesse was Mayer Rothschild. Interesting. I mean, they were involved in basically financing, you know, uh, war early on. In fact, sure. you, you talk you talk a lot about, uh, particularly, it was uh, James Rothschild in France, right? He was his involvement in Napoleonic Wars that really sort of like helped solidify, you know, I guess you know Rothschild's business into a multi generational kind of dynasty. So, I mean, like, how what was his involvement in the Napoleonic Wars? Sure. So in the early 1800s, Mayer's other sons began to leave Frankfurt and go to the other financial capitals of Europe. James went to Paris. His son Nathan first went to Manchester to get into the textile business there and became extremely wealthy very quickly and then moved to London. So when the Napoleonic Wars really hit their stride, France was blockading the continent. And the armies fighting against Napoleon desperately needed money, in particular to pay a lot of their mercenaries. These guys wouldn't fight if they weren't paid. So the Rothschilds essentially set up a system to funnel the treasure of the elector of Hesse and to make loans to powers on the continent through gold. So gold was being smuggled back and forth across the English Channel in a system put together by Mayer and by Nathan. And the Rothschilds made a gigantic amount of money doing this. They made commissions on the gold they sold. They they bought and sold bonds. You know, all of this was, was above board because the forces fighting Napoleon desperately needed money. They needed, they needed a huge amount of money. There were millions of men on each side. So the Rothschilds essentially put themselves in a place where they were the financial backers to the opposition to Napoleon. And they made a very large amount of money really in the first 10 years of the 1800s. Mm. Now, the most enduring legend uh, about the Rothschild family uh, centers around the Battle of Waterloo. So uh, there are lots of variations of the story, but the core of the story is that Nathan Rothschild somehow got early news of Napoleon's defeat at that 1815 battle and then capitalized on this information before the rest of the world learned about it. Kind of international war insider trading. And now the, the, uh, the specific details about how he learned it and how he 
capitalized it apparently is told differently in different variations of the story. But like, how exactly has this this myth been expressed? And like, was is there any substance to it? So there are a number of different versions of this story, and the first is also probably the most implausible, but it's also the one that really caught on the most in the conspiracy world, which was that Nathan was actually at the battle. He was watching the combat between the forces of Napoleon and the forces of Wellington. He was so close, he could smell the cannon smoke, and he could, you know, see the anguish on the faces of the wounded men. And he was looking at the battle, and he saw that Napoleon was about to lose. So he, you know, as this story goes, he jumps on a horse, rides at midnight across Belgium, gets to the port of Ostend, bribes a terrified sailor to brave a once-in-a-century channel storm to take him to London. He, you know, he lands in England. He gets to London. He's so exhausted that he goes to the London Stock Exchange and he slumps against his favorite pillar. And the other bankers look at his his disaffected affect and his exhaustion. And they say, oh, Napoleon has won. We have lost the Battle of Waterloo. And they panic and they start selling their, their bonds. Mm. But of course, Nathan, being the you know crafty Jewish financier, knows what's going on. He's, he's giving secret signals to his agents to buy up all the depressed bonds. He buys all of these complete devalued bonds. Then the real news comes that the forces of Napoleon have been defeated and the British and the Prussians have won. These bonds skyrocket in value and Nathan Rothschild is suddenly the richest man in the world and he controls all of the British money supply. Hmm. Now, none of this happened. There, <laughs> there is no historical record that any of this took place. Ah, oh, shucks. That's such a good yeah, story. <laughs> I know. It is. It's a great story. It is a great story. And it's a very cinematic story. It's a story that lends itself to a lot of really unnecessary detail. But this is the story that really emerged in the second half of the 18th century. And as it kind of grew, as it mutated, as the Rothschild started to push back against it a little bit, some of these details kind of got sanded off. People stopped believing that Nathan himself was at the battle, but that one of his agents was at the battle. There's all these stories of like sea captains and storms and midnight rides and none of none of this stuff happened. It is entirely fiction and the best that Nathan did was probably make a very small amount on buying up bonds probably in the aftermath of the battle. Mm-hmm. But there is no evidence that he made, he or anybody made this gigantic fortune off of the news from Waterloo. It's just, it's just totally implausible. Mel Gibson's Nathan, the real story. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> you know, Mike, this is this is one thing that I noticed while I was reading your book. I haven't finished it yet, I'm sorry, but I've been sorry. reading it, and one thing that I noticed is how cinematic so much of it feels, yeah. especially when you, you know, you're talking, even in the opening, when you're talking about this story about, you know, Anna de Rothschild, sort of, <laughs> wor- you know, it, it, it feels like, you know, it felt like I was reading, like, The Great Gatsby, and yeah. you really get a sense when you start reading these conspiracy theories in text, like within within the book, you know, before you go on to debunk them, just how much like a action movie or a spy mm-hmm. movie or a, yeah, or a Mel Gibson, you know, a Civil War era epic, these stories feel like. And it, you know, it, it was striking to me, sort of coming to the realization that so much of these things, it's like, Oh man, well that would have been cool. Oh, that's like that's an in- <laughs> oh that's an interesting story. Like oh that makes things feel more exciting and meaningful. And you really get a sense for the power that uh, the mere story generators of a lot of these conspiracy theories sort of they thrive off of. Yeah, there's a reason why these conspiracy books sell in such big numbers. There's a reason why these conspiracy movies 
do so well. These stories are big and they're epic and they're involving like battles and money and palaces and gold and storms and horses. This isn't kind of small town chintzy stuff. This is big world changing stuff. And the Rothschilds are are at the center of a lot of it because they really were at the center of a lot of it. So it feels plausible and it's fleshed out with these very big epic details. And it's great storytelling. I mean, you mentioned that the Rothschilds really were at the center of some major historical events. And I mean, that's very interesting to me because like whenever I explore conspiracy theories, I always like I I, I always want to be charitable and try to understand if there's like a version of truth that's sort of like uh, so, somewhere uh, within the grand conspiratorial narrative that they're trying to tell. And in the, the Rothschild story, there's a pretty significant one is the fact that they really were the wealthiest family of the 19th century. Oh, yeah. And uh, unsurprisingly, this wealth and these connections gave them influence in a way that crossed borders. You write in that book, quote, by the 1820s, the Rothschilds dominated European finance, almost single-handedly developing what would become the international bond market. They were counselors and lenders to European royalty, the Vatican, prime ministers, and King George IV himself. And they were now bankers to the Holy Alliance, the treaty group of Russia, Prussia, and Austria. They emerged to combat future French militarism. So, I mean, if you just remove anti-Semitism from the equation, if there's anybody you should be uh, sort of conspiracy theorizing about, it should be the people who control all the money and how it flows, right? So, I mean, like, couldn't you just, like, take a look at this and say, maybe it's bad that one family holds so much sway over an entire continent because they control the flow of money? Oh, sure. I, you know, there there was a lot of writing and uh, and satirical cartoons about the Rothschilds in the early part of the 1800s that really did, you know, posit them as as these kind of controllers of Europe's destiny. They, they were satirized in some of the biggest works of the time. They were written about almost as like kings of kings. There was a lot of ambivalence about how powerful they were. You know, they had this role, not just as lenders, but as peacemakers. And if the, you know, if, if two nation states are going to go to war with each other, well, just get the Rothschilds involved and they'll broker some kind of deal. And there is an enormous amount of power. And with that kind of power comes scrutiny, comes rumor mongering, comes whispers, and especially because they were so conspicuous in their wealth. You know, they had these giant palaces, they had these giant gardens, their name is everywhere. So it's totally understandable why there was a lot of ambivalence about the Rothschilds. But with a powerful Jewish family, and especially one that is very public in their Judaism, they didn't convert, they didn't push aside that part of their life, the whispers and the rumors very quickly curdle into anti-Semitism and conspiracy theories. And it's a very almost natural process when that happens. Hmm. I mean, another element of truth to the, you know, the Rothschild conspiracy theory is that they used their wealth in ways that were abusive and shaped history on multiple continents, though sometimes in ways that anti-Semites might not have a problem with. So in your book, you specifically discuss their role in the colonization and plundering of Africa through the financing of the white supremacist Cecil Rhodes and the De Beers Diamond Company. So how did they assist those projects? 
Yeah, it's another, I think, under-discussed aspect of their history, that they were involved in a lot of colonization and a lot of the plundering of these nations. You know, there's a lot of uh, sort of grabbing at resources that this family did. You know, they had the biggest copper mine in the world. They had uh, diamond mines, they had ruby mines, they had nickel mines. Now, they don't anymore, but they did at the time. And with uh, Cecil Rhodes and De Beers, N.M. Rothschild, which was the, uh, the British firm that sort of uh, emerged in in the mid-1800s, they were one of the biggest financiers of Rhodes' you know, excursions into the diamond business. They were a big financier of De Beers. There's letters that are written by Rothschilds, you know, going back and forth to what was then known as the Cape Colony in South Africa, sort of giddy with these fines that they made and the cracking down on dissent. You know, it's, it's very ugly stuff. Now, the Rothschilds eventually did kind of wash their hands of Cecil Rhodes when the there was an incident called the Jameson Raid, where Rhodes's uh, troops, I mean, basically militarized police attacked a group of natives, essentially. There was a there was a riot and there were a bunch of people were killed. The Rothschilds kind of backed off. They really didn't share his kind of all-out colonial ambition. But yeah, there's a there's a lot of financing there of some very, very ugly stuff. You trace the origin of Rothschild's conspiracy theories to a deadly train derailment in 1846 in France, as well as a anonymous pamphleteer who just went, went by the name Satan, apparently because of the Rothschild's actual financing of the war against France, there was a lot of uh, bad blood between many of the French people and, I guess, Jewish people generally. So uh, how did uh, Rothschild's conspiracy theories, as we know, kick off? Yeah, and it happens in in 1846 in Paris, and it's a very particular time and place, because a couple of years later, you would have the revolutions of 1848, which were these uh, socialist spasms against ruling governments and against the wealthy. And in particular, there was a lot of anti-Jewish sentiment in France and a lot of anti-Rothschild sentiment. So in, uh, I believe it's in May of 1846, a train derails north of Paris, and it's on the Nord Line, which is a line that was founded and owned by James de Rothschild. And the numbers of people who die kind of vary, but there's a, there's a number of deaths, there's a, a number of injuries. The accident is written about in these very lurid, almost kind of pornographic details in the papers of the time. You know, there's severed limbs and like a son holding his mother's guts and you know, things like that. You know, it's kind of very graphic, very attention-getting kind of detail. And that incident is then mixed up with the Battle of Waterloo by this French pamphleteer uh, named Dernvale, who went by the name Satan. And this guy was basically, I mean, you could maybe call him like a blogger of the time. I mean, very anti-rich, very scabrous, making a lot of accusations. This pamphlet that accuses James de Rothschild of this cheapness and this pettiness and not caring about people who die on his train line, and then adding Nathan Rothschild having attended the Battle of Waterloo and exploited it to take control of the British economy, mixed very well with a lot of the anti-Jewish and anti anti-wealth sentiment that was going on in France at the time. And this exploded. This kicks off a pamphlet war in Paris. This pamphlet, uh, the curious and edifying history of James, the king of the Jews, sells like 60,000 copies. There are response pamphlets to it. There are anti-Rothschild responses to the responses. It goes all over Europe. So this really starts this spasm of anti-Semitism that also gets wrapped up in this sort of strange quasi-occult incident 
incident called the Damascus Affair, where the Rothschilds get involved in a blood libel incident in what's now Syria. So there's a, a lot of historical animosity that boils over to the surface, and you find that these spasms are very cyclical. They will explode, then they'll die down. Then in another generation, they'll explode again, and then they'll die down. And you can see that happening over and over and over as we go on, as, as the public kind of needs a scapegoat. They're always going to come back to Jews, and they're always going to come back to the wealthiest of the Jews. Yeah, I think it cannot be overstated enough how your conspiracy theory is far more popular and has, you know, much greater impact when the narrative is based on something that people already believe. Yep. You know, it's, yeah, sure, every now and again you might get, you know, you might have a new song, you know, a new album that does really well and people go like, oh yeah, hey, like their new stuff is like pretty good. But, you know, everybody just wants you to play the, you know, the original hits from like the 1994 album. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. N nobody wants to hear, you know, the new song by the Who. You want to hear you won't get fooled again. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's it's a it's a recycling of these tropes and you know the details change and the, the you know the amounts of money change but the idea that they did this to us is always going to be popular because there's always somebody who's upset about something and needs somebody to blame for it. Now, I hope you can uh, help me make sense of one of the more baffling conspiracy theories I've seen sometimes, and that is the accusation that the Rothschild family had a role in the founding of the United States. <laughs> now, this one has always kind of confused me because usually like American conspiracists, uh, they believe that the founding of the U.S. was free from any malicious conspiracy, and the conspirators only seek to corrupt the flawless political vision of the founding fathers. So how did some accuse the United States itself of being a Rothschild plot? Yeah, it's it's very murky when you get into kind of who made these accusations first and where they were published first. But the gist of it usually comes back to Mayer and his role in the uh, in the Hessians. Now, Mayer didn't actually have anything to do with that. The you know Mayer's role as a as courtju was one of many many different ways that the Elector of Hesse made this enormous amount of money. And you know it's it's very easy to look at that and give it a lot of impact when it didn't really have that much. But there's all kinds of theories that are usually rolled into American, uh, you know, early American revulsion towards central banking. There's a lot of talk that like Alexander Hamilton was a Rothschild agent that uh, one of the actual funders of the American side of the Civil War, the, the Jewish financier Chaim Solomon was a Rothschild agent. He wasn't at all. I mean, the Rothschilds would not have had anywhere close to the amount of money needed to lend the uh, the nascent America the money that it needed to go to war with England. And they're, they're, the Rothschilds' base of power was in England. They, they weren't going to, you know, pay for England and also pay for these upstarts to fight England with money that they didn't have at that point. But it, it makes a very convenient scapegoat to say, well, you know, America didn't originally want central banking, but now we have central banking. And, you know, who's tied into central banking? It's the, it's the Jews, and who is the most powerful Jews? It's the Rothschilds. So I think it really has to do a lot with, with the American economy and sort of how a lot of the early ideas just didn't fit as America just became a bigger and bigger country. Oi, Vey, you're wasting all this beautiful tea in the Boston Harbor. What are I know, you doing? I know. No, no Jew would ever would ever throw out the tea <laughs> like that. I mean, you'd, you'd say, that, well, you know, why, why do we have to get rid of it? It's perfectly good tea. It's perfectly good tea. It hasn't been opened. 
It hasn't been opened. It lasts forever if you keep it in yeah. the basement. Yeah. Gosh, how funny would it have been if the uh, if the Hamilton musical was about conspiracy theories? <laughs> and they were like, "What? What are we going to do? What are we going to do about these evil Jews? About these evil Jews?" <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're watching like, "Oh man, this is a masterpiece! Like I've never seen American history." Oh. <laughs> it probably would have been just as popular, but with a completely oh, totally different been. audience. Totally would have been. Oh yeah. <laughs> You'd, you'd be you'd be seeing every reawaken America tour would uh, have a selection of, of yeah. hits from Hamilton. Yeah, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have to create their own QAnon musicals. Nope. They nope. could just nope. they could literally just have you know star Broadway actors just just <laughs> clips just clips from the TV movie. Yep, all kinds yep. of good ideas. Anti-Semitic Les Mis. We've got sure. lots. We've got lots of stuff loaded up for well, you folks. Well, I mean, it, maybe there already is some. <laughs> maybe Les Mis are. I haven't seen it in a while. Maybe it's already there. You haven't seen it. <laughs> we huh? know how the French. We know what the French think about our people. I'm going to send you the original Victor Hugo, and uh, we'll make you read it instead of see it. <laughs> now, what's really fascinating about uh, Rothschild conspiracy theories is that they really peaked in the 20th century, despite being you know hundreds of years old. But this was after the Rothschilds lost much of their relative wealth and influence. Now, now, first of all, what caused the, I guess, the decline of the House of Rothschild from their peak as, you know, literally the wealthiest family in the world? Yeah, the, the banking world really changed. You know, the idea of one extremely powerful family that would just make a big loan to a prime minister or a king, that just wasn't as popular as the 1800s went on. You started to see joint stock banks, which were the kind of banks we have now, where, you know, people invest their money, they get paid interest. You know, if you want a loan, you take out a loan of the other investor's money, you pay that money back. That kind of banking was much more corporate and much less reliant on one family or one sort of cadre of families. You know, a lot of the Rothschilds in the, you know, so the fourth and fifth generations, they didn't want to get involved in the in the business. They were they were the idle rich. Jelani found in one of the letters of like, they thought bankers hours were like clocking in at 10 and leaving at two. The family just didn't get that involved. They had a lot of trouble maintaining some of the houses. The Frankfurt house actually closed. The Naples house closed. So you went from five houses to three houses. They had a lot more competition. The, the idea of just lending a bunch of gold wasn't as popular anymore. And they they started to sell off a lot of these interests. They sold off the diamond mines and the nickel mines. The railroads got broken up. And, you know, wars happened. Empires changed. And so this family just wasn't able to keep all of these resources together anymore. And then as the 20th century dawns, they really are not able to survive the war. They're not able to survive the depression. They're not able to survive the rise of other German Jewish financiers who went to America because the Rothschilds never went to America. Hmm. I mean, it is funny that that like all these conspirators like in the 20th century really hopped on uh, incorporating the Rothschilds into their conspiracy theories right as the Rothschilds were deep into their fail son era. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> I mean, as the Rothschild banking empire basically became much more reputation than empire, mm. they got in, rolled into more and more conspiracy theories that not only weren't true, they just weren't even possible anymore. But they were so well known that they were just really easy to point to and say, it's them, it's it's the Rothschilds, they're still doing it, when there were many, many more people who were much more powerful by that point. Mm. I mean, like, uh, like, how did myths of the Rothschilds get wrapped into, I guess, more general anti-Semitism in the 20th century? Because I, I understand these kinds of myths were also an in international affair. 
Oh yeah, they're, they're all over the world. And a lot of it has to do with the interwar period and the period between the First World War and the Second World War. You know, the worldwide economy slumps and it's very easy to blame the Jews for that. And then in one particular instance, one of the major banks that failed in Austria, and I write about this a lot in the book, the Austrian bank Credit Anstalt was actually founded by the Austrian heir of the Rothschild family. And his, uh, you know, his heir, Louis de Rothschild, was actually uh, taken hostage by the Gestapo, mm. and he was held for ransom, and a lot of Nazi papers at the time wanted him to personally make good on all of the losses around the world because of the failure of this one Rothschild bank. And you had the um, the isolationist movement get involved and look at the sort of uh, encroaching of war as yet another way for the Rothschilds to pit all of the sides against each other, make money through usury. It became very popular to blame Jewish bankers for what was about to happen, despite what was already happening to Jews in Europe at the time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, actually, I was oh, I was doing some independent research before this interview. I found a really interesting article in the New York Times from 1937, and it's headlined, Rothschild linked to Marx by Nazis. Yep. And it's a subheadlined, German historian terms the two brothers in blood and spirit. So that's, a, that's some real horseshoe theory going yeah. on here by yeah. the Nazis, saying that uh, Karl Marx and the wealthiest banking family are all part of the same cabal. Right. And, and you have that kind of linking of these two uh, extremely different philosophies together because you, you're you pandering to people who believe that the Rothschilds are, are capable of anything. You get some of this in the 70s. Um, this guy, John Todd, who believed, who was this sort of anti-Satan crusader who believed that a Rothschild had funded the writing of Atlas Shrugged. Mm. I, I mean, of like all of the things that do not mix together, it's very easy to go, well, the Rothschilds can do anything. So why wouldn't they do that? It completely uh, makes you leave your senses in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's really funny to imagine Karl Marx. He's like, well, it seems like the Rothschild family's not doing so well. They're not rich anymore. We're losing power. You know what? All of capitalism is bad then. That's <laughs> yeah. That's why I think these things, you know. And now we have yeah. to deal with, of course, his his great grandson, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> you know, these these darn leftist Jews. Yeah. And, and it just, the Rothschilds and Jewish power just become the through line in ways that don't even make any logical sense. But of course, the people who believe this stuff, they don't want it to make any sense. It doesn't matter to them if it makes sense. It's just believable in the worlds that they've created. I sometimes wonder if even just the powerful, like, sound of the name mm -hmm. itself, because, you know, Rothschild is actually, it's not like a Millerstein or a Schulberg or... You know, something that is traditionally, at least, you know, that has that sort of easily, you know, identifiable sort of uh, frenetic connotation. And I don't know, to me, there's almost something frenetic about the conspiracies and the power and the evilness sort of ascribed to them. Yeah, yeah. It's a name that, you know, because of all of the history, it has this mystique to it. It has this aura to it. You find that a lot in a lot of the biographical writing about the family. Just that mm. the name has 
this kind of aura of power and wealth. And I think, you know, going back to the uh, Anna de Rothschild, you know, the fake heiress who infiltrated right. Mar-a-Lago, she was able to get in because of that name. And mm. people were like, oh, Rothschild, I want to be around a Rothschild. It is like Rockefeller or mm-hmm. you know, Morgan or one of these kind of, you know, money epic families where it's just power flows through them and just being near them, you will be near power. And, and it's very easy to exploit that. Mike, even before you became a conspiracy theory researcher, you know, growing up with this name, were you ever aware of people maybe treating you differently? Or did it affect you personally, I guess, in any way growing up, having this name, but not obviously being attached to, you know, the, uh, you know, the infamous Rothschilds? No, it really never did. Uh, you know, it, it never came up with people who knew us. I mean, nobody who who we grew up with thought we were like, heirs to some trillion dollar fortune. I mean, we just didn't know anybody like that. You know, I would occasionally joke about, you know, getting a family discount on a bottle of wine or something, but it (laughs) it really never, it it never negatively affected me until I started writing about this stuff. And I was like, wow, this name has this power that is totally outside of the power that it actually has. There's an actual version of the Rothschilds, and then there's the mythical version of the Rothschilds. And when you sort of put those two things together, Together, it's an enormous driver of myth and hoax and conspiracy theory. Yeah, I had a friend growing up on the in the suburbs of Chicago who was a, a Rothschild, and uh, never thought about it. it. Just never. I think, no. especially within you know Jewish communities, and you know your friends, your parents' friends, it's a non issue. It's not even something that gets brought up. It's only when you start interacting maybe with folks from different back, you know, different backgrounds who have potentially maybe heard some of these stories or, you know, like, for example, there was a, I remember when Titanic came out that there was people talking that that were saying that, oh, this was a plot and JP Morgan, you know, uh, had the Titanic sunk because the Rothschilds were on board. And that's actually, there were, there were no Rothschilds aboard no. the Titanic. Is that right? Right. There were there were no Rothschilds. The, the actually the only person whose name was Rothschild was the uncle of Dorothy Parker, who was not related to the Rothschilds. Her, la- her her last name at birth was Rothschild, but she wasn't related. He wasn't related. Totally different part of Germany. There were no uh, Rothschild bankers on the Titanic. There were no Rothschild bankers involved with the Federal Reserve. There's no reason why there would be. The Rothschilds didn't have anywhere near that kind of power in the United States at that time. Out of curiosity, I looked up what the Rothschilds are doing today, and uh, the, the company is now called just Rothschild and Company, and it's controlled by Alexandre de Rothschild, and uh, they apparently have had a few good decades financially. This is despite being involved in a handful of scandals, including one that has been called the world's greatest financial scandal. This is the uh, One Malaysia Development Berhad scandal, and it involved the uh, Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund being systematically embezzled, and then the assets being spent spread all over the world. In 2018, Swiss regulators found that the Swiss arm of the Rothschild and Company was one of a few banks that breached Switzerland's anti-money laundering rules. Other banks sanctioned for participation in the scheme included JP Morgan, Kautz, and the uh, Swiss banks BSI and Falcon 
private bank. So they're still active and uh, about as moral and discerning as every other international banking institution, I suppose. Yeah. And the, you know, the Rothschilds now at this point are one of just a number of banks. There's nothing particularly special or interesting about what Rothschild and company does. You know, they've been involved in in certain aspects of politics. You know, Wilbur Ross was a bankruptcy specialist for, it was then called Rothschild Inc. Emmanuel Macron worked for Rothschild for a while, but it's, there's nothing about them that is any different than any other major bank. You know, there's no Rothschilds on the Forbes richest list. The the family just doesn't have that power. The two remaining houses after the Second World War were the British House and the French House. And they started letting non-Rothschilds become partners. They merged. You know, I don't I don't know exactly kind of what the status of that merger is, and it's not something I pay a ton of attention to. But you know, now they're just they're just another bank. And the and the people who think, well, they're above the law, well, not really. They've been sanctioned by the IRS, they've been sanctioned by international authorities. They they do the same stuff every other, you know, major wealth, you know, uh, driver does. There's nothing that interesting about them anymore. All we're really left with now is the myths and the mystique. Mm. Apparently, uh, the other thing that their uh, good fortune ha- has uh, allowed them to do is like uh, take their operation private. They apparently have had to rely upon some private equity to keep their operation afloat. But uh, there's a Reuters report that talked about they're uh, trying to make their whole operation you know, off the markets. And it says that, uh, quote, the take private move would shield the group from the day-to-day scrutiny by the markets. So, you know, like, um, yeah, yeah, it's one of those things, like, it's frustrating. I'm really curious, um, like, when you're, like, researching this, and whenever you're uh, researching, I guess, generally conspiracy theories about powerful or influential people, and uh, you're trying to, you know, try to have a discerning eye and being generally uh, faithful to uh, what what the what the facts bear, you ever get concerned that maybe you're just really just doing PR for these powerful people? Uh, you know, sometimes I think about it, and and it's one of the reasons why in the book I don't really write about what the Rothschilds are doing now because mm. it's it's not that interesting, and mm. it it's certainly not interesting compared to the historical versions of what they did in the past. And now, you know, I look at them as as just a wealthy family that has a very well known name. You know, they're very philanthropic in a number of ways, but their banks are still banks. I mean, international finance is still what it is. You're always going to be looking to get a leg up on people. You're always going to be looking for ways to avoid taxes. Uh, you know, to avoid regulation. So it's not a huge surprise to me that a company like Rothschild would want to go more private because historically the family was very private. The, the family kept its business in the family. You know, I mean, sometimes literally in terms of Rothschilds from one branch marrying Rothschilds from another branch. That was done to keep this fortune in this family. So it's it's not really surprising to me at all that they'd want to eventually become a private company again. It's not anything that I have any need to defend. Uh, they, they don't need me to do that and I'm not interested in it. All I want to do is separate the reality from the myth and try to pick apart how these myths are being used every day against Jews. Super fascinating stuff. Now, before I let you go, I got to ask how you're doing personally, because you have had a hectic uh, month or two. Besides the, you know, the upcoming release of your book, doing your promos, your mother recently passed, as you yeah. discussed on Twitter. My condolences for that. Thank you. And uh, well, that's going on. Uh, Alex Jones went on an <laughs> unhinged rant about you in uh, response to your brief appearance on CNN to discuss Sound of Freedom. So you, you, uh, you unpack that in greater detail 
detail on a episode of, with our friends over at Knowledge Fight. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, how have you been holding up with all of that? It is uh, truly bizarre to be looking at clips of yourself on Laura Ingram's show mm-hmm. as the founder of Operation Underground Railroad makes uh, insinuations about you while you are picking out a casket for your mom. Mm. Uh, That's weird. And I feel like the only way to get through it is to really lean into the weirdness and to talk about it and to try to make something useful out of it rather than, you know, do the Midwestern traditional thing of just like pretending it never happened and like, hey, we're all (laughs) fine. Like, it's not great, but it's also not great in some really bizarre ways that are kind of unique to this profession. So, I I mean, it's terrible, but it's also like it's surreal in a way that I feel like can be useful to other people. So, you know, I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing okay, hanging in there. And, you know, I really appreciate you, you asking about it. I appreciate being able to talk about this stuff. It's very cathartic for me to uh, take a big dump on people like Alex Jones or people like, you know, some of the anti-Semites who've spread this stuff. Uh, you know, that's the way that I work through this stuff. So I, I, I appreciate that. Why don't you like the sound of freedom? It's literally <laughs> freedom and you mm. hear it. And it's it's good. <laughs> well, you know, as I've been told many, many, many times, God's children are not for sale. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard also never trust a pedophile. Uh, I yes, I've also heard that too. I've uh, I'm wondering, you know, all these people who think my hard drive should be checked. You are going to be super disappointed to find um, old book drafts. <laughs> you know, and and what's been so interesting about that is the response to this movie has led to a response to a response mm-hmm. it's entirely too meta for for my taste and so like going on knowledge fight and like listening to me being listened to by alex jones it's just it's a lot and it's like i feel like i'm the kind of person who i've waded through enough tunnels filled with shit that I can handle it okay. And like, it's almost like appropriate. Like, of course, this is all going on at the same time. So let's just do a podcast about it. Like, why wouldn't I? I think it's really interesting to one study conspiracy theories, but then hear conspiracy theories about yourself. And because you're you and you know your life and you know what you've done, it's weird to hear other people say things that you know aren't true. And, you know, we have to deal with that a lot Mm -hmm. just in day-to-day life, but to have it then displayed in this very public forum is something that a lot of people don't have to really deal with. And it is, it is bizarre. It's got to feel, there's got to be like some kind of disassociation there because it's like, you know your life, you know what you've done, you know what you're into, what you're not into or or whatever, what your connections are, what, what they're not. And to hear somebody so confidently say something that is so wrong about you and nobody will ever really understand that because they're not you you know they might hear your response and go like oh yeah well I, I trust that guy and I definitely don't like Alex Jones so yeah 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 but to yourself yeah to watch somebody so confidently be so wrong about you is a very weird thing that um not not a lot of people I think have to experience on this like very very public sort of uh, way yeah it is it's it's truly bizarre to read the things that 
that people make up about you. And you you have to be careful to not gaslight yourself. You have to be careful to remember this is not true. To remind yourself that my life is much more boring than whatever version of it these people are are making up for themselves. Because they're making up a version of me that it, that does not exist, that never has existed, that never will exist. And at some point, it's almost like it becomes their problem. I can't change how other people feel about me. I can't change the the reactions that people have to me telling the truth about something like Sound of Freedom. That's on them. That's not about me. And when you realize that it's not about me and there's nothing I can do about it and that responding to it is in many cases the worst thing you can do to it. You know, I really understand how the Rothschilds have handled a lot of this stuff by just not talking about it. There's nothing that they can say. You know, a, a Rothschild error, you know, saying, well, we don't have $500 trillion. And of course, the conspiracy theorist is going to go, well, of course he has to say that. That's not true, but he has to pretend that that's true. There, there is nothing you can say, so you just say nothing. And I think that that applies to other aspects of life as well. To not let what other people say about you inform how you feel about yourself. I think that's really, really important, and I'm glad that you touched on that. Yeah. You have to stay confident in what you believe, what you know to be true about yourself, and and what you know to be true about your work. You know, you you have yeah. to just not let it get to you because when it gets to you is when they win. When mm -hmm. you just laugh it off, there's nothing that they can do other than just keep saying it over and over, but it loses its punch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would I would simply laugh it off as I kind of hunched over and rubbed my hands together. Yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Julian, I can make that joke. You can't. <laughs> tent, tent my fingers together and, you know, ponder what I'm going to do with my next trillion. Well, we're glad you're doing okay. I mean, yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. I mean, I feel like, you know what? Now that Alex Jones is like talking all kinds of shit about you, you could probably get away with a couple of financial crimes and be like, what are you? I probably could. What are you with I, Alex I could, Jones? You believe his shit? No, I didn't do this. <laughs> could get away with some light embezzlement or. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Just don't pay your taxes for like a few years. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah. That's the rule. Yeah. When Alex Jones talks about you, you don't have to pay taxes that year. So, so thanks for joining us, Mike. That book is uh, Jewish Space Laser the Rothschilds and 200 years of conspiracy theories. When is that coming out? That is out September 19th. I'm going to be doing a few events for it uh, that I will tweet more about. You can pre-order it in hardcover or Kindle, and I think very soon an audiobook. Uh, you can get that wherever good books are sold, and pre-orders are a huge, huge part of determining a book's success. So if you are interested at all in the uh, history of anti-Semitism, the uh, wacky world of conspiracy theories, I would encourage you to go check it out, and I do not think you will be disappointed. All right, Mike, and, and other places people can find you i know you're still at uh twitter or x whatever it's called now i, I won't call it that all right uh, yeah i'm still still on twitter um still you know fighting the good fight there <laughs> tried out a couple other places nothing's really sticking i'm just i, I don't want to be online enough to have a presence on more than one social media site that does the same thing so i don't know maybe that's like a weird line to have no but, fair uh, i already <laughs> I, I spent too much time on twitter already i don't need to also spend the time on blue sky and mastodon and threads like i have actual work to do and twitter is great and i love it but it's not the thing that sells books mm. so i'm still there and you can find me at rothschild md and uh yeah that's that's what i'm doing all right thanks mike yep 
Thanks for listening to another episode of the QAnon Anonymous podcast. You can go to patreon.com slash QAnon Anonymous and subscribe for five bucks a month to get a whole second episode every week, plus access to our entire archive of premium episodes. And I was recently alerted that it has been five years since Jake and I posted our first uh, malformed uh, episode to um, a podcast uh, feed. So, wow. Congrats, boys. Travis, yeah. congratulations. Congratulations, yeah. guys. That's a huge accomplishment and what you guys have done and are doing is is really special and really important ah thanks man yeah congrats on five years thank you michael jake thank you for originally you know falling down a rabbit hole that would then pull all of us down there with you (laughs) and uh travis congratulations on lucking your way basically kind of almost like i would say weaseling your way into uh, a big success story I think you weaseled him in. I don't think he was particularly uh, enthusiastic about driving three three hours to sit in a hot that room. That is so untrue. As soon as I was like, would you like to come on a podcast? He had like 7,000 Twitter followers. He's like, yes, I will drive from San Diego. I will see you at your apartment. <laughs> but that's crazy because we have now been doing this show longer than I was in college or longer. You know, it's like its own, it's like its own, it's, yeah. its own education. And uh, yeah. yeah, fantastic stuff. Certain type of education for sure. But yeah, no, I appreciate you both. And uh, yeah, that's it. I appreciate the listener as well. Couldn't do it without you. And listeners, until next week, may the Jewish space lasers bless you and keep you. It's not a conspiracy, it's fact. And now, today's auto cue. There has now been a Facebook post from two years ago uncovered where Marjorie Taylor Greene appears to be talking about some kind of secret Jewish controlled space laser that may be responsible for wildfires. Uh, Let's take a look at it. This is from November of 2018, where Greene said, I'm posting this in speculation because there are too many coincidences to ignore and just putting it out there from some research I've done from my curiosity over PG&E stocks, which tanked all week, then rallied Thursday night after California official announced they would not let PG&E fail. I find it very interesting that Roger Kimmel on the board of directors of PG&E is also vice chairman of Rothschild Inc. International investment banking firm. I also find it interesting the long history of financial contributions that PG&E has made to Jerry Brown over the years, millions spent in lobbying. What a coincidence it must be that Governor Brown signed a bill in September of 20. 2018, protecting PG&E and allowing PG&E to pass off as most of fire responsibility to its customers in rate hikes and through bonds. It also must be just a coincidence that the fires are burning in the same projected areas that the $77 billion high-speed rail project is to be built, which also happens to be Governor Brown's pet project. And what are the odds that Feinstein's husband, another another Jewish person, Richard Bloom, another Jewish person, is the contractor tractor on the rail project. Geez, with that much money, we could build three southern border walls. Then oddly, there are all these people who have said they saw what looked like lasers or, or blue be- beams of light causing the fires and pictures and videos. 